Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. On today's edition of The Peripheral, we're going to do something a little different. So if you are just tuning in now, you might want to go back and listen to other episodes because that's more of the theme of the show. But today's theme is people have asked me to tell my story. I've already recorded this twice, and I'm feeling how my guests feel. Weirded out and afraid, don't know what to say. My first recording of this, I didn't think it came out the way I wanted it. I, I felt like I actually was sort of depressing and jaded, and I didn't want to come off that way, so decided to do this over. I grew up in Southern California. My brother, my sister, and my mom and dad. My biological father uh, was in jail or prison at the time I was born, or at least that's what my mother tells me. I don't know if he was actually in jail when I was born or if he was in and out of jail, and so she just left him. My biological father, I guess, was a drug dealer and would run LSD and marijuana from Kansas City to California. Uh, my mother left him for obvious reasons, but she'd already had three kids with the man. We moved to California. My earliest memories are of Southern California. Uh, my mother remarried to a man named John who adopted us three children. So I call him my father and not my stepfather or whatever. But my mother and him were would get divorced, didn't get along, whatever the reasoning. I, I never really asked. Once they separated, we, we moved out and my father lived in downtown LA and I lived in like Westlake Village. And we would see him on the weekends. After a little while, got a little bit older and sister and brother would start experimenting with drugs, start dating, what have you. My brother is five years older than me and my sister is two years older than me. And I was always the tag along. I would always try to hang out with them because they were the older, cooler kids. And, you know, I wanted to do that. My brother was very much into music and he was into everything from, you know, Jefferson Airplane, Pink Floyd to Nitzareb and Slayer, like just a whole gamut of stuff. So I listened to all the same stuff he listened to. And my sister, we didn't have as much interaction as my brother and I did because she had her own life, but she would always have really horrible boyfriends. Uh, that's all I remember is just these guys would become stalkers. They would call the house. And this is in the time of landline. So you'd you know, that the house phone would be ringing nonstop with these guys trying to track her down. They'd show up in the middle of the night, throw rocks at the windows, things like that. 
it was on another level. It wasn't cute. It wasn't uh, welcome. And it became downright dangerous with a lot of them. At an early age, my brother would have problems. He would uh, have mental breaks. He was put in a special uh, Votech educational school because he wasn't able to keep going in regular public schools. So at an early age, it was sort of obvious that there was something wrong with him. Um, They would say that he was borderline schizophrenic, but I don't even know what that means, especially back in, you know, the 1980s when their understanding of mental illness was pretty lacking. Uh, That said, though, I, I still hung around him and my friends. I had a lot of friends, but my only friend that I really spent a lot of time with in elementary school, middle school was my friend Maurice from down the street. And he was really into sports, but he also was into skateboarding, and so was I. So we we hung out and uh, skateboarded and watched WWF and all the things that kids do. By age 11, my brother is 16 years old and hanging out with his friends. And he had this one kind of hippie friend named Lewis. They would do all their drugs together, whether it be smoking, uh, smoking pot or drinking or doing psychedelics like mushrooms or LSD. Me being an 11 year old, I I would like to hang out with them. And my brother would always be annoyed with this because, you know, his little, little brother tag along didn't want me around. Uh, so one time I'm hanging out with them and apparently they've taken uh, large amounts of LSD and they don't really know what's going on. And we're walking to the, uh, gas station down the street and course I want to come so I'm walking along with them being annoying and I'm sure I was being extra annoying because they're on drugs and Lewis turns to me and says hey put this on your tongue I think I was 11 first time I started using drugs uh it was a very interesting night that night I don't remember much um I don't recommend anyone give their 11-year-old child uh, any kind of drug, especially LSD. But I do remember watching Pink Floyd, The Wall, the movie, and that was what kept my attention during the night. After my mom and dad separated, living in California didn't seem affordable to my mother. So we just she packed up and we moved across country to Kansas City where her family, her grandparents, and you know my uncles and stuff live. And Kansas City's about one-third the cost of living as, a, as compared to California. In Kansas City, I made friends. I skateboarded uh, sixth grade, seventh grade. I, I changed schools a couple times. But I finally settled down with a group of friends that all skateboarded and were like-minded. Most of them were living with a single parent. Most of them were sort of degenerates <laughs> is what you know they'd be called. In school, you had the freaks and the jocks. The jocks were the preppy guys that played sports. And then you had the freaks, which were like the metalheads. And and then you had the skateboarders. And we were none of the above. We were not considered in these equations. Uh, But we were always picked on a lot. Uh, Skateboarding back in the Midwest in the 1990s, early 90s, late 80s not looked upon very well. Uh, We were routinely attacked by 
by other students, by other people. There were numerous times where we'd be walking down the street and a carload of guys would be driving by and they saw us on the side of the road, skateboarding, doing whatever. They would stop their car, jump out, and attack us. We were really good at running away because we, we weren't really into fighting. We were more passive. Most of us had older brothers or sisters that had friends who would know who we were. So if one of the attackers from some high school knew our older sibling, they would back off. But that didn't happen all the time. There was a night that I was skateboarding with friends and I had ollied off a flight of stairs and as I landed, it snapped my board in half. And for whatever reason that night, I decided to walk home by myself and my friends uh, went their own ways and we just, we all went home. And I was on a very isolated country road, nobody around for at least a mile or two. And I was walking by myself. Now, there were trees and there were houses that were well off in the distance, but there was nowhere I could really go and hide without trespassing onto somebody's property. You just, you had to stay on the road. Otherwise, you're hopping a barbed wire fence. I remember a car pulled up, probably a Camaro or something. And a guy rolled down the window and said, uh, stupid fucking skater, we're going to, we're going to beat you up. I'd pretty much kind of had my fill of being harassed at this point. Normally, I wouldn't say anything. Normally, I would try to run away. But like I said, there wasn't really any place for me to go. And I wasn't quite in my fight or flight stance yet. So the guy, uh, it was him and a friend. So there was the driver and the passenger. And the driver said, you know, we're going we're gonna to fuck you up. And I said, well, why don't you get out of the car and do it then? Stop talking about it. Because <laughs> that was just the sort of uh, attitude I had. And um, so the driver uh, opened his car door and started to get out. And as soon as his foot touched the ground, I kicked his car door closed on him. Uh, kicking the car door closed on him uh, was enough to disable him. And he screamed out in pain. And uh, at that point, I did run because I was in my fight or flight phase and I hopped a barbed wire fence and tore my shirt up and ran between a couple farmhouses and over a creek and through the woods and back to grandmother's house I went. But that was that was the level of uh, violence that we were faced with and we had to defend ourselves every now and then. Luckily, that was the probably one of the worst situations and the only situations I that led to that level of violence. We did get the police called on us numerous times because we were considered, it was considered trespassing or loitering if you were skateboarding in a parking lot and the, the shop or store didn't want you to be there. Kansas City would actually pass a city ordinance, which would mean that if you were caught skateboarding within city limits, you could be arrested, charged a $500 fine and up to six months in jail. I was arrested twice for skateboarding but it was before the laws had changed. So all I was really arrested for was loitering. And then the police uh, would typically just take me home and tell my mom. And my mom would kind of give the response of, what was he doing again? Like, was he vandalizing? Was he doing something wrong? No, he was skateboarding. Okay, well, what what's the problem then? Uh, but I, I have to admit that when you're treated that way, when you're treated like a criminal, you start behaving like one after a while because, you know, hey, you're getting arrested for stuff that doesn't matter. 
It's like, alrighty then. You know, especially I was in seventh and eighth grade. I was like a 13 year old kid and the police are pulling up aggressively in their cars and jumping out and screaming at us and then getting the story of, Oh, you're just skateboarding. You know, they, they don't know. All they know is what the shop owner called and told them. So I didn't start drinking until I was 13. Oh, that sounds weird. Didn't start until I was 13. Like people start before that. Uh, it was my eighth grade year. I, I really embraced alcohol uh, to a point where most people say I was an alcoholic. I drank almost every weekend with my friends. We would actually ask people, adults in the parking lot to buy it for us, just random strangers. If we couldn't get them to buy it for us, we would go into the store and try to shoplift the alcohol. Uh, there was a grocery store where the magazine rack was right next to the liquor aisle. So we would go in there all the time and read the thrasher magazines or the skateboarding magazines. And we just reach over and grab a beer, crack it open, down it, shove the empty bottle behind the magazines and continue reading. And maybe we'd buy the magazine. You can only imagine that most of these shop owners would eventually start throwing us out. We would hang out at, at this girl's house and her mother happened to work at a drug rehab for teens so you can only imagine how hard her mother was on her, always searching through her drawers, questioning her what she's doing, always suspecting her of doing drugs. And it was really sad because she was a pretty good kid, but after she became a teenager and her mother started treating her that way, it was almost like you accuse somebody of cheating on you and they're not doing it. Well, now they're like, well, why not get the benefits of doing this if I'm going to be accused of it? You know, why don't I go ahead and do these things? Not to say that her, her mother's treatment is what drove her to use drugs, but I'm sure it didn't help. We would go to her house because her mom worked nights and we would party at her house at night. And her sister or whoever would get us alcohol. Her sister was of age. I started to get closer to her and I, I liked her. And I started uh, hanging, trying to hang out with her more one-on-one. -on -one. But typically, it was always we would hang out in groups and we were drinking all the time. So one night, uh, me and this girl, uh, we started making out. We started kissing. And we're 13 years old, by the way. We're drunk. And apparently, her older sister, she didn't like me very much or she didn't want me uh, hooking up with her little sister, even though we're 13 years old and, you know, we're all virgins. We're, uh, so the night that I was, uh, kissing her little sister, as soon as things calmed down a little bit, she asked me to come upstairs. Her older sister asked me to come upstairs. And so I did, and I didn't know what she wanted. And she took me into a bedroom and I'm drunk. I'm 13 years old. And she proceeded to take my clothes off and have sex with me. So that was my initial sexual experience in life was with a 21 year old when I was 13 years old. Apparently she did this to prevent me from being with her little sister. It wasn't 
like I, I don't even know what the actual motivation was, but that was what I was told after the after the event. After it happened, she put me in her car and she drove me home. It was like two in the morning. Just dropped me off. We didn't speak to each other. It was kind of awkward after that. I would go on to date her younger sister, and we went on for at least a year or two dating and um and our drinking continued um in eighth grade, we drank so much that she actually would clean out her hairspray bottle, fill it up with vodka, and in school she would put it in her locker, and we all had the code to the locker. In between classes, we would swing by the locker and take a big old swig, go to the next class. I ended up failing, I think, five of my seven classes in eighth grade. Uh, Wasn't doing too good the first semester. Not because I was stupid, but because I was drunk. Second semester started and they put me in a learning disability class, which was sort of eye-opening to me because at that point I realized, oh, there's sort of a problem here. I used that class, it was more or less a study hall, to do all my homework and just get all my work done. I ended up passing the eighth grade, barely, because I didn't stop drinking. I just allocated a part of my day to get all my work done. So that was uh, my eighth grade year. By high school, I had uh, started smoking pot along with drinking I did experiment with some other drugs, but I never really was into anything else. I was just more of a a drinker and a pot smoker. And I didn't even really enjoy marijuana all that much either. But in high school, that's when I realized that everybody else would uh, want to buy marijuana. And so I would take a, you know, I'd roll a joint, I would take a highlighter pen, I would pull the, the filter out, clean it out, put the joint inside the pen, and then I would sell the pens at school for five bucks a pop. During high school and middle school, as a skateboarder, you weren't part of any clique, any group, you were your own group. There were divides and divisions. You, you couldn't, you know, if you were a freak, you couldn't go hang out with the jocks or the preps. If you were a prep, you, you would be looked down upon if you wouldn't hung out with the nerds or whoever. There was that whole high school bullshit stuff going on. There were a lot of divides, even racial. The black kids would not hang out with the white kids. The Mexicans or Hispanics would not hang out with, you know, whatever. But in our group of skateboarders... We, we had Hispanics, we had Filipinos, we had blacks, whatever. We did not care. During lunchtime in the cafeteria, there was a table. And as bad as this sounds, it was called the black table. And all the black kids would sit there. And then there was the rest of the, the cafeteria. And uh, I skateboarded with a guy named Lou. I, I remember he, he asked me to come over to his table at lunch one day and I was a little hesitant at first because I'm like, ah, we're not allowed to sit here. (laughs) And he's like, come over here. And I remember at that point is when I realized that the skateboarders were not part of any group. We could move in and out of whatever group we wanted. We could sell them drugs. We could hang out at their parties. We could do whatever. We just weren't even considered at all. It was interesting to see. So the networking we could make there was was limitless. 
a lot of people didn't like us, but then when they wanted to, you know, get a joint or get some alcohol, they knew that we were the people that they could go to and get those things. Uh, later on in life, this would come into play. I was also arrested. We were out at a party. The girl's parents were out, so she threw a party at the house, and she asked us to go get alcohol, more alcohol for the party, and we said, okay, cool. Um, you know, we just have our skateboards, so uh, it'll take us a while, and she said, well, you know, here's the car keys. You know, we were like 16 at the time, and she said, here, take the car, go get it so you can bring it back faster. So we jumped in her car, we took off, we went and got the alcohol, and when we came back to the house, it was swarming with cops. Apparently her parents came home early and called the police. We pulled up in the car, we saw the cops, we parked the car a block away and walked away. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then, so there wasn't any way to tell her, hey, your car's down the street. So there was four of us and we were walking off and one of the group said, you know what, I'm going to go back there and tell, tell her the car's down the street. It's just our friend goes back to the house to tell him. Well, apparently once he got there, the police immediately arrested him and were pressing him for information about the car and accusing us of stealing the car because apparently when her parents said, where's the car, this girl's response was, some guys took it some boys, I don't know who they were. So our friend is now arrested for Grand Theft Auto, young black kid, three cops surrounding him, screaming at him, saying, you stole the car. He just agrees. So now the police uh, put out an APB for us, and we get uh, surrounded by police officers walking down the road, and we are now arrested for Grand Theft Auto also. Yeah, we shouldn't have been drinking, we shouldn't have been doing all these things, but we didn't steal a car. They took us down to the station, booked us, all those things. We dumped the alcohol and whatever bad things we had on us. Again, we're back to, we're going to call your parents and have them come bail you out, pick you up, whatever it is. I told the officer who I was, my name, and my phone number. And I said it out loud in the room. All my friends were sitting there. So, you know, we were handcuffed to each other. So it wasn't like we could go anywhere. And, uh, he couldn't dial the number for whatever reason. I just would not go through. And he started uh, screaming at me saying that I was lying to him. And my friends were saying, no, that actually is his phone number. Because again, this is the time before cell phones. You had all your friends' numbers memorized. And they're like, that's his number. Uh, so then he went around the room and started calling everybody else's parents. And then he got back to me, dialed again, and it went through for some weird reason. I don't even know why. He told my mom... I was arrested for stealing a, a car and that I needed to come down to the station. My mom got to the station, not happy as you would assume, but I actually explained the situation to her. I said, the girl let us borrow the car. I'm not even lying. That was one thing that my mom probably didn't realize is that I never lied to her very often. Like it was just never, it didn't happen that often. I would tell her exactly what I was doing. The conversation would go something like, what are your plans this weekend? Oh, we're probably going to go out with friends, probably go steal a fifth of vodka, light a fire, steal stuff, you know, raise hell. She'd be like, haha, that's really funny. She didn't believe me. <laughs> so, but in this situation, I said, we didn't steal the car. We actually borrowed the car with permission, but 
she somewhat believed me at least calmed her down because if I would have been arrested for the real things I was doing bad, it wouldn't have been a conversation up until this point. I literally feel like I'm getting arrested for bullshit, (laughs) not any of the things that I'm really doing wrong, but that's reality. Later on in life, I would actually be drinking at a bar and my car would be broken into by a, uh, pretty much a a homeless heroin addict that that was his thing is he would break into cars in a bar parking lot steal stuff and shoot up his heroin because it was really cold outside so i'm at this bar and uh the band stops playing and they say who owns the car with this license plate and i'm like that would be me go outside and talk to the police half the patrons at the bar are in the parking lot looking at my car with shattered windows and the police are there and they're like sir is this your car and i'm like yes it is And they say, please put your hands on our hood. And they start arresting me. I have no idea why. And of course, I'm asking them, why are you arresting me? And they're like, put your hands behind your back. And they slam my face to the hood because, you know, now I'm resisting arrest and I'm questioning their authority. Um, Apparently, this this homeless guy who was breaking into cars, um, he he shot up heroin in my car and he left his dirty needles all over my seat. And when the cops showed up, for a reported break-in, they looked at the car, they looked at the shattered window, and they saw the drug paraphernalia, the used heroin needles in my front seat, and they said those had to have been mine, and they arrested me for having possession of drug paraphernalia. The charges would be dropped. (laughs) But this is sort of my whole introduction to law enforcement. Wasn't the best. I do have friends now that are police officers. I speak with, you know, current active, active police officers and retired police officers. I do not share my same opinions of law enforcement as I did as a child, but you can kind of understand why I might have a little bit of a, a questioning of authority sort of response to things. By my sophomore year, all the people that I interacted with because of drugs and alcohol kind of turned into assholes and I really didn't care for many of them. I didn't care for the people that I, I hung out with. I didn't care for some of the people that I would sell to. They, they weren't funny enough here. Here I was judging them. I didn't feel they were very high caliber people. I know ironic Uh, but I just, it wasn't what I was into. I was dating at the time, uh, different, uh, different women. Um, most were older than me. I think I was 16 at the time and I was dating, uh, a, a girl that was 20, 21. It was just happened to be that way. I, uh, I was in a drama class and I started getting into acting and that was kind of nice. And I met, met some some friends from that. At that same time, I was working. I got a job at a restaurant as a dishwasher. And as most of you know, that's where I met Aaron and the whole Generation Y thing. But Aaron, uh, he came in and he was wearing a psychic TV shirt. Anyone that doesn't know who that band is, it's uh, Genesis Peorage. Back in the day, they did very experimental electronic music. That was very rare to see in the Midwest in the 1990s. 
I think this would be 92. So I saw that shirt and I was like, what kind of music do you listen to? And we had, we started a conversation. He said, what kind of bands do you like? And, and I said, I like the band Skinny Puppy, which was another industrial experimental band. And, and he said, that's my favorite band. And we were friends from that point on. It wasn't until much later that we actually did the Generation Y, but the unmagical version of Aaron and I's uh, introduction to each other. I have many other friends, lifelong friends, and I'm sorry, I apologize. I'm not mentioning all of you, but you're all, I love you all. My sophomore year, I, uh, I met my friend Adam, who happened to be straight edge. If you don't know what straight edge is, it's you don't drink, you don't smoke, you don't fuck. And there was an old Minor Threat song, old punk band, that they were all straight edge. And so you don't smoke. You don't smoke cigarettes, marijuana. You don't smoke any kind of drugs. You don't drink. You don't drink any alcohol. And you don't fuck, which equated to you did not have one-night stands. You did not have illicit sex. You would have a relationship. So that's the definition of straight edge. I'm sure straight edge people would probably think there was more to it, but in a nutshell, that's what it is. Hanging out with Adam, I... I wouldn't say that I went straight edge, but I definitely cut down on my drinking and drug use uh, between his influence and just not being into a lot of the people that I was hanging out with that were into the, the drug scene. My grades started going up. I had something to focus on, but we had moved out of the school district and apparently the high school had figured that out. My sister was a senior that year and I was a sophomore. It, we, she was going on her, her senior year and they said to her, you can finish out your senior year here, but Justin cannot go to the school any longer. So I had to ch- switch schools um, in high school. There's a big, long kind of weird story about that that I don't think really applies to anything. <laughs> so, but uh, I went I went to a magnet school for half a day in the inner city and it didn't really work out. So I ended up going to the public school that was in my district where I lived and it was very nice. It was actually, I was expecting it to be horrible and it was, it was interesting because I had, I had to make all new friends and I didn't have the alcohol and drug influence of my old school, even though I was kind of out of that. But my sister was addicted to morphine. It just seemed like she either would date really horrible men that would uh, be verbally and physically abusive and would stalk her. I personally never wanted to be like any of the men in her life. I, I saw these people that were completely overbearing in her life, would be controlling, would always be calling, sneaking around the house, trying to see where she's at, seeing if she's cheating on them or whatever the craziness was. And I thought to myself, I never want to be that guy. It's to the point though, where I won't even, I wouldn't even ask a girl out on a date or get her number because I thought that might be an overstep. I never was assertive ever in my life. And thank God that most of the dating and stuff I would do was turned out okay, but I just never wanted to be that guy. So I never wanted to be the jealous boyfriend or the overbearing, controlling boyfriend. My mother really didn't 
see me getting better. Like she wasn't there watching my my every move. She just knew that I had a problem and that I wasn't doing too great. Uh, I was arrested uh, for uh, being a minor in possession of alcohol. And that's that's an interesting story. I was out with friends and four of us. The driver, she was of age and the rest of us were underage. And we went out to a, a concert. I think it was Soul Coughing and um, Girls Against Boys or something. But on the way home, we had all of our empty bottles of alcohol. And I'm with my friend Adam, who is straight edge. And we were we are pulled over by a police officer for speeding or whatever, sees the empty bottles of alcohol, and he has us all step out of the car, and he says, you guys are minors in possession. I'm arresting you. Now, as much as my mother would laugh if a police officer had arrested me for skateboarding, getting arrested for something more real, she wasn't into after he booked us and processed the three of us because he let the driver go. The, the driver who was of age, she didn't, she, all she got was a speeding ticket, but the other three of us, we were all arrested for being minors in possession. At the end of the night, he said, okay, uh, you know, he said kind of in a snarky way, call your mommies and daddies to come bail you out. And I just looked at him and I said, nah, give me my, give me my jail scrubs. I'm not going to call my mom. She won't come bail me out. So deal with me. And the police officer looked at me and he said, are you kidding? And I said, no, I'm not kidding. My mom will not come bail me out. I said, I'll sit in jail until my court date. The police officer didn't want to have to deal with all that paperwork and they didn't have a jail on site. They would have had to have processed us and sent us on a bus somewhere to go to the jail. So before my two other friends even called their parents, he let us go on signature bonds or our own recognizance to show up in court. So funny enough, my, you know, my whole, my mom's not going to bail me out is actually what got us out of there that night. I looked at the cop, you know, he, he arrested me, Adam and Jacob all for minor in possession. And my friend Adam is straight edge. He did not drink. The alcohol was not his, but the way the law is written, if you're in the car and you're under 21 and there's alcohol in the car, you are now a minor in possession. Doesn't even matter if you're with your parents. It's a very vague law and it's a very bad law. This is stupid. Adam and Jacob, they ended up hiring an attorney. I was a miser. I didn't have any money. I mean, my mom's not going to pay for an attorney. So I just took the court-appointed attorney, the, the public defender. Adam and Jacob hired an attorney and were found not guilty and released. Now, they paid hundreds of dollars to their attorney. It didn't matter if the alcohol was being drank <laughs> by anyone. It didn't matter if Adam had drank. It didn't, none of those things mattered. It was, it was more or less just being in possession of it. So Jacob and Adam are found not guilty. I got the public appointed defender who told me right off the bat, you are guilty of this crime. You were in a car with alcohol. Therefore, you're, you're guilty. And I said, that's, that's not going to help because <laughs> the, the whole point of this is to fight this. And my two friends have already been let off. So why are you saying this? And I uh, had a very bad experience with that court appointed attorney because she just didn't care. My uncle he came to the courthouse and he knew the judge. So we went in the back room and did this backroom deal with the prosecutor and the judge that got me community service. 
But what kind of lesson does that teach a kid? Public defender was useless. Uh, the only way to be found not guilty is a backroom deal or pay money. And this, this is what I'm seeing when I'm, you know, 15, whatever years old. It didn't really sit well with me. Oh, and while I was in court for the minor possession charge, I actually ran into some of my old friends from high school that I used to deal drugs with, and they were in there for, for drug charges. So kind of uh, eye-opening to me again that I was trying to move away from that. The other time I got pulled over, uh, I was driving, and my sister and I shared a car. In this car at the time, there was uh, a bunch of alcohol in the back seat. At the time, I was very much into guns, so I had a twenty-five caliber pistol under my seat. I also liked making pipe bombs. I don't know that sounds bad, but I, I liked it. And my uh, grandfather was a, uh, a lieutenant colonel in the Army, and he was a manager at Winchester, and he would load his own shotgun shells, and he taught me how to do it at a very young age. So I knew how to make bullets and shotgun shells and I knew that how the how they worked and what gunpowder did so I would take a PVC pipe fill it up with gunpowder with a fuse and I'd blow stuff up and my sister I think left some of her drugs in the car a bag of marijuana so I got pulled over and I have alcohol marijuana a gun and a pipe bomb in the car if you were to hear this on the news or read an article about this you would think that kid is a horrible devil and and deserves to be put away in prison. The police officer didn't search the car, saw the alcohol. They saw my driver's license, which I had just got. I was like 16, just, you know, literally just got my license. He gave me a warning. He, he wrote me a, a ticket for the speeding or whatever I was doing wrong. But he said, I see what's in your car and you need to take care of that. Like you need to be smarter. Because right now I could arrest you and pound your car. He didn't even know about the pipe bomb, the gun, or the drugs. But he he gave me a uh, a firm warning on the side of the road when he saw these things. I think this was 1993 or 4. But because of these arrests and whatnot, my mother thought I was not going to be anything in life. So she uh, she told me that I would have to join the military. One day I came home from school and... She was sitting at the kitchen table with an army recruiter. Pretty much they cornered me and persuaded me to join the army, which I did. I'm going to put my whole army story on another episode, so you'll hear it there. Uh, So in between my junior and senior year, I went to basic training. And then after I got back from my senior year, I went to my advanced training. You would think that the army or the military would have put me on the straight and narrow, but I, I didn't really gain much from it besides I knew what my limits were. And I knew that I had never pushed myself or challenged myself ever in my life up until that point. So I guess that's sort of a good thing. Once I was graduated and out of the military, I, uh, started getting, uh, it work. Um, I, I got a job at gateway 2000, doing tech support, and I learned computers. I wasn't a computer geek. I wasn't a gadget geek. I wasn't even a nerd, you know. So I got a job 
at Gateway 2000. And then I got, I uh, went on from there and got different jobs and moved around the country. But I, I did get a job in, uh, at Sprint doing IT work because I never really felt any tie to any group, any kind of person. When I'm at a company in a corporate environment, I didn't care if it was the local telephone division, the long distance, if it was the accounting department, the IT department, or HR. None of those things mattered to me. I did not care about departments, department heads, if you were the VP or if you were the the janitor. I treated everybody the same. I would float in and out of every group. Most IT people, I'm not going to say all, you always got to give that stupid disclaimer, but if you've watched the SNL skits about IT computer people, if you watch the IT crowd or, or Silicon Valley or whatever, a lot of IT folks have an arrogance about them. A lot of them have a culture where it's always the user's fault and they don't want to help. I didn't have any of those things because I wasn't a computer geek. I just happened to know how to fix computers. I uh, worked my way up the corporate ladder to the point where I was chosen to be executive services. And what executive services is, is the personal IT support to the CEO and all of his direct reports of the company. You would have to be there during their shareholders meetings. You would have to travel with them to five-star resorts on private jets and whatnot. I've stayed at places like the Breakers in Florida, San Regis in California. If I had stayed with my job and not quit to do podcasting full-time, I would have been sent to Hawaii and uh, sky's the limit on, you know, the places they would send me, but I, I couldn't I couldn't continue working my job there. So here you have this skateboarder, <laughs> didn't finish college, drank too much, dealt drugs, most likely to be dead by age of 30. Now I'm sitting on a private jet flying to wherever they're sending me. I only bring this up. I only want to point this out. Because I know a lot of you listen to me, a lot of you respect me, look up to me, whatever. But when you are hearing about somebody else's tragedy, when you're hearing about some kid that was gunned down by the police or some criminal that's done something, whatever it is, and you pass judgment and you think that person's a horrible person, that person has no value, if you were around me when I was a teenager, you would have thought all those things. You would have called the police on me and probably with good reason. I was not a good kid. For at least me, it was a phase. It was the group of kids I hung out with, not saying it was their fault because usually I was, it was my idea to go do these horrible things and not their idea. Whoever had the worst idea for the weekend, we'd go with that. Whenever you are watching or listening to the news and you hear about somebody that you think is a horrible member of society. Just remember, some people do change. Some people can turn their lives around. I have very little faith in a lot of people because of having to go through the situations with my brother and my sister. It's possible. My brother would have a slow decline over time. He would 
because he had issues, whatever. He would self-medicate. He would drink. He'd use drugs. He would end up being pretty much homeless, in and out of halfway houses, in and out of drug rehabs, but he never would really come out of those things. I would watch him steal from my mom. I would watch him borrow the car and wreck it. I would watch him finally get involved with a group of people that had no interest in human life or anything. So he he just really went downhill. I realized that uh, the human body is very resilient. People that use drugs can go on living for a very long time. But it was sad to see my brother do this to himself. You could try to help him. You could try to get him to change, but he wasn't going to change because of his addiction, because of his untreated mental illness. So I was, I felt like by giving him money, by trying to help him, I was enabling him to continue this lifestyle, which wasn't much of a lifestyle. It was just getting by. And I actually thought, well, if I cut him off, maybe he'll hit rock bottom and figure it out. Uh, He hit rock bottom, but he just stayed there. And he would end up uh, passing away in, I think, April 2004. Not sure the exact circumstances of it, but he was on multiple antipsychotics. And whether it was a bad mix or an overdose, we're not sure. But he would end up having a, a stroke and dying from that. He was 32 years old. I'm turning 40 this week. If you take away anything from this, know that I turned myself around. And I wasn't even like I was trying to turn myself around. I literally just was disinterested in a lot of the horrible things I did as a kid and became interested in more productive things. It wasn't that I looked upon these actions as bad and now I want to be a good person. All through my life, I never looked at it as good and bad, as evil and holy or whatever. That was never, ever a factor to me. It was just what is going to make me happy today. And the things that I got happiness from are what changed my viewpoints. I'm no longer interested in shoplifting and drinking and doing drugs. And I'm more interested in a job and buying my own house. Well, I could really go on and on. I have a million stories that I could tell. This was really just to let everyone kind of know what the person I was, the person I became, and the person I am now. And I would hope that uh, anyone that's just tuning into this podcast today understands, you know, this isn't the normal. I don't know. Maybe it is the normal, but that's my background. and It might be shocking to some, but all I can hope is by telling you exactly how I was as a kid and all the things that I've done and who I am now. And if you think I'm a good person and respect me now, then I would hope that you could find it in your heart to forgive some other people or not look down on others just because they've made some mistakes in their life. 